Um, we're going to continue on through our sermon series on the journey. This morning we're talking about what it means for us to journey together as a um, community of faith, the church, and some of the challenges that go along with that and also some of the joys that go along with that. Um, we're going to spend time this morning in a book of the Bible that is um, not often preached on. It's Titus chapter 3. This is the first time I've ever preached from this particular text, but I think it has something good for us to learn, and I believe God has prepared a message for us this morning. We're going to read the first 11 verses of Titus chapter 3. If you want to find that, it's fairly easy to find. It's right in front of the massive book of Philemon, which you can easily find in the New Testament. It's right near the end of the New Testament, actually, so should... Uh, Before we spend time in God's Word, let's pray for His blessing and His Spirit's presence. We praise you, O God, for your Spirit's presence. We thank you. We've already seen that as this young man, Nathan, has professed his faith in you and claimed the truth that Jesus Christ is his Lord. That's a gift that you've given to him and to us. We're grateful for that. And we ask that your Spirit might remain that we might be moved, transformed by your message, your message to challenge us, your message to move us, your message to grow in our hearts and our minds, what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ and what it means to put others before ourselves. We pray, O oh God, that those folks who are here who do not know the message of hope that comes in Jesus, that you might move in their hearts and minds in such a way that if, Lord, it be your will, they come to know you, they come to understand who Jesus is, and that he is the way to relationship with God for all eternity. Father, may I be a faithful proclaimer of your word, may we be faithful listeners of your word, and may truly you move through us, through your Holy Spirit, and because of the power of Jesus, that our hearts and minds and our lives might be changed by you. Pray these things all in Christ. Amen. Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are 
unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I generally don't like to start my messages with putting us into a negative mindset, but I want to challenge us this morning with thinking a hard thought. I want to ask you to go to that worst day. And by worst day, I mean the day when your sin and your acknowledgement of your sin perhaps was worst. The day of you doing that thing, saying that thing, be a part of that thing, which <clears throat> you know the power of that thing for guilt and condemnation in your life. Maybe it was a, a first thing that you'd never done before and thought you would try it, experience it, pursue it. And you'd known before that it was wrong or that it was something that you were not ready for, but for whatever reason, because of your own passions, your own desires, your own hunger, you moved towards it. Or perhaps it was something that you were encouraged to do with another person or by another group, and so you moved towards it. And eventually, you looked around at where you were and said, how did I get here? What did I do? The consequence of that doing continuing to be with you. I want you to think about your really bad day. Now understand, I don't want you to sit and dwell in the guilt of that bad day. I have no desire to make you feel the condemnation, I believe, the truth of God's word that when we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and impart to us all the gift of righteousness I believe that I trust that that sin is forgiven as you have confessed it however I want you to think for a moment about your motivation on that day what took you to that space that place that event that occurrence was it a hunger was it a desire on your part was it some sort of compulsion? Was it a uh, simply, you know, lack of foresight? What, what, what I want to get to is that sin by its very nature is marked by something that we need to think through, I think, together today. Sin by its very nature is marked by selfishness. Selfishness is truly the hallmark of all sin because sin by its very nature is independence from God, doing what it is that God does not call us to do, acting our own way according to our own agenda, own purpose, own plan. Independence, which independence also by its very nature has selfishness. And I want you to think about on your worst day how you were marked by your selfishness. Now, I, I hope that your worst day wasn't yesterday or today. I also hope that if you think about your worst day, that you think about your worst day as being something that you've moved from. And what I want to talk about this morning is what moves us. 
from those days of selfish independence from God with such rebellion and brokenness because of it to what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ. If we're going to do this, let's get a little bit of a picture, a context about this book of Titus. Probably not a book that you've heard much about, nor Titus being a person that you've heard much about. Titus is a dear friend and co-worker of Paul, but he's not just the, you know, another missionary or another church worker. Titus has a, sp- a particular role in the church, and Paul uses him in that role. Titus, if, for lack of a better term, you could consider to be the heavy. He's the one that Paul calls into those situations that are messy, that are broken, that are a group of people who are not getting along. And the group of people that are not getting along in this particular book are people in Crete. It's an island in the Mediterranean, and there was a small church community growing there, and it wasn't going super-duper well, so Paul sends his heavy, his fella, he sends Titus. Now, if you want to imagine for a moment what that church might have looked like, if you want to imagine in this room, you may do that. Titus walks in the room for the first time of this church that is gathered. And if you want to imagine what Titus might see, Titus would walk in the room, and instead of the warmth and the loving community that we experience at the river where we hug and shake hands and all that other sort of stuff, they got little groups. A group over here. A little group over here doesn't like this little group over here because they believe differently about something or because she broke up with him when they were in high school. Or then there's this group over here, and they don't really get along with this group and really get along with that group, but they really don't get along with that group over there because they, one likes their beef this way, the other one likes their beef this way. I mean, who knows? There's a whole lot of discussion in the text about things that are marking this community. And it's quarrelsome talk, it's divisions, it's other stuff that seems to be marked by just this, I want things my way, my ideas, my agendas, my plans. And I know that this morning I'm not preaching this message to people who need to hear it because the river's never had any of that. Have we? For those of you who are new to the river, it has had that. Some of you old timers, just a show of hands. How many of you had Sundays in the last seven or eight years where you absolutely did not want to come to church because it was simply too hard to face all the people? There's a lot of folks who've been here for a long time and know what I'm talking about. There were hard times because that stuff is a mark not only in this community, it's a mark in some way, shape, or form on just about every community. And when Paul is talking to Titus, he's marking this stuff as a sign of immaturity that mature believers have left behind. These Cretan Christians have some growing up to do. They've got some maturing to do. 
And Paul, actually, it's interesting the way that he does that. Understand, the way this book is written, and if you read the text again, you'll see it. Paul is writing to Titus individually so that he might then teach these things to the Cretan church in general. And he talks about you and you being... um, the people that Titus is teaching. And he talks about their behavior. And the behavior is marked by division. And it's marked by selfishness. And then he talks about the group of believers, Paul, that he's with now. And he talks about we. How we used to be. And now we've grown beyond that. And now here's who we are now. What Paul is saying to Titus, you're part of a group right now that's like this. They're immature. They're selfish. They're quarrelsome. They're fighting. They're not getting along. But I'm part of a group that used to know that too. We used to be like that. But now, because something remarkably different has changed, we're no longer like that. Now we're different. Now something's changed. Now we've grown. So when Paul is teaching Titus to encourage people in such things, he's teaching from some experience that he knows within his church work. In order for this to really happen in the Cretan church, there has to be a fundamental shift in how they live life within the church community. And that's what Paul's talking about. Now for us, how much growing do we need to do? How much maturity do we have yet to attain? Have you arrived? Have you? Anyone here arrived? Please don't put your hand up. We'll all make fun of you. You're wrong. You haven't. We haven't. None of us have. The most mature believers in this room haven't arrived because we're always in the process of maturing. But where specifically do you need to work on your maturity? Are you still living out the yuck, the blech, the dirt, the filth of verse 3? What about verses 9 and 10? And when you look at 9 and 10, you see some of the specifics that Paul is talking to Timothy about. He's talking about gossip, critical speech, judgmentalism, and being willing to listen to others. And again, I know this is not something that we at the river have to deal with at all. We're never this way. We're never gossipy. We're never judgmental, especially to people from Dort College. We're never any of those things. We never gather in our little cliques in the fellowship hall during cookies after the service and sort of isolate ourselves from somebody else. We never do that, do we? We never sit in the same spot on Sunday morning because to sit in a different spot with different people around us might be uncomfortable. We never make judgments about people who walk in the room who look differently than us, act differently than us, smell differently than us, have a different skin color than us, or whatever. Truth is that this is exactly the sort of thing that we need to be reminded about over and over and over again. And it may not even be in our conversation, but maybe it's in our heads and in our hearts and our minds. We wouldn't say such things, but we would certainly think them. 
we would have understanding about how somebody is. And the truth is, the text tells us that that's immature. Which means that all of us who feel that little twinge of guilt, that little twinge of conviction, have some growing up to do and some maturity to gain. For us to understand that all of this behavior exhibits selfish tendencies is a good place for us to start. There are no gossips. There are no um, people who are contentious and seek conflict out within the church. There are no people who are judgmental who do not exhibit, exhibit some sort of selfish tendency. It can't happen. There is an element of selfishness. When we gossip about somebody, it's because we get a selfish pleasure from knowledge that that we can then share with others or even soiling another person's name. When we are judgmental towards others, we have a selfish desire to make ourselves look and feel better about who we are. When we are seeking, when we seek conflict or, or contention within the church, it's because we get selfish pleasure from the nature of fights and what it means to disagree with somebody or even show another person just how much we don't like them. There's selfishness all over the place and there's consequence for that. History teaches us that. Our lives teach us that. But I want to take you back to a very serious issue, a very serious disagreement that still marks us today even if we're not aware of us, it or not. I'm going to tell you the story of Cerulius Cerulearis, gotta get that right, and Humbert. Cerulearis is from Istanbul, what is, it's from Constantinople, which is what Istanbul is now. It's in Turkey. Humbert is from Rome, which is in Italy. And I would encourage all of you who are pregnant, expecting a child, name your child Humbert, because that's just an awesome name, I've decided. It's a great name. Humbert and Cerulius are sort of like this on the totem pole. Humbert's a little bit above Cerulearis, but not much. They sort of represent two different groups, and those two different groups are disagreeing. And they're disagreeing about important things, don't get me wrong. They're disagreeing about worship, what it means to worship, and who or, or what sort of things you can have in your worship space. What's appropriate? They're also discussing things about where the Spirit comes from. Does the Spirit come from just the Father or from the Father and the Son? These are important things. It's Trinitarian stuff, and those of you who know how much I love theology, those are important things. We need to talk about them. But we need to talk about them in a certain form and fashion, and Cerulearis and Humbert haven't got that memo yet. Because they have a gathering to talk about these things. Cerulearis has a much larger group be with him. Humbert has a smaller group. Smaller group, larger group. And right from the get-go, what basically Cerulearis is asking for is that he be bumped up a little bit. Not equal to, but bumped up a little bit on the totem pole on his side, that he be recognized as a patriarch of a certain group. And Humbert, of course, says, no, you're not getting bumped up at all, and in fact, by doing so, knocks him down a notch. Cerulearis isn't happy about that, and he handles it well. He handles it by excommunicating Humbert from the church and kicking him out. 
And Humbert handles that very well, because he's upset, um, but he's going to respond in a very mature fashion. So he says, neener, 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 kick me out, will you? I'm kicking you out, and excommunicates him from the church. And it goes on. There's some work towards reconciliation, not with Cerulearis and Humbert, because they're too ticked at each other, but with others. But it doesn't work. And we still see it today, because this is actually the great schism of 1055, where on the one branch, Cerulearis needs the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, in the direction of iconoclasm and where they do not confess the same confession that we have, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. We end up on the family tree on Humbert's side eventually after a whole lot more fighting. But if you look on the family tree because of how these two folks and their sides handled a particular issue, an important issue but a particular issue, and how they handled it, the tree took a big right and left turn. And we still can't always work together. In fact, there are places where they're still fighting this to the point of death. There's consequence when we allow, when the church allows selfishness to stand within its community and in how it deals with issues. Praise be to God. When we look back at the text, Paul addresses that to Titus and then to the Cretan Christians in such a way that he's giving them, God's giving them, a roadmap into order to how to handle this better. First of all, it starts with where the energy comes from. Paul is instructing the believers through Titus on how the Spirit is the one who initiates this maturity, a movement from selfishness, gossip, all those other things, into selflessness and servanthood. And God is the one who initiates that. But then He also is the one who continues to move, it, move us because it's not from our own human effort. That comes in verse 5 very clearly. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. God begins this work in salvation and renewing us to relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But he's also the one who through the Holy Spirit initiates the growth, the movement, the maturity through his spirit from one place of selfishness to another of selflessness. But for us to understand first and foremost that that power is from God. He then points them away from those selfish, self-focused activities and towards activities that serve others and put them first. This is the beginning of spiritual maturity. How many of you folks in here are married? How many of you have been part of a marriage relationship? We'll put that up. Okay, that's a lot of you. Some of you are not in that space, I understand, but I still think you'll get the illustration. How many of you, on the day that you were married to your lovely, dear spouse, were selfish goofballs? 
How many of you are still selfish goofballs? All right. And if you didn't put your hand up, your spouse might throw your shoulder out, throwing it up in the air. The truth is that when we start in something, we are inevitably marked by that sort of selfishness. When we start in a marriage relationship, it's marked by an unadulterated, unfettered selfishness. But I hope that you can say in your marriage relationship, you have progressed in your selfishness. How many of you would say that there's been, that there's been progress? Okay. <laughs> the shankles are wondering. They'll work that out after church sometime. Hopefully there has been progress. Why? Because you've addressed your selfishness. And you've realized that to be married well means to serve another. Give yourself up, your plan, your agenda up for another. Likewise in the Christian walk. You want to grow? Serve. Give yourself up. Stop your agenda. Stop your plans, your purposes, your focuses, and allow yourself to be submitted to God's plan, God's purposes, God's focus. You want to grow? You're stuck? Then learn what it means for you to move out of the selfishness that you are stuck in. That's what the text is calling the believers to. And why is it calling the believers to? Well, let's think of a good example of that. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who modeled this for them. And because Christ modeled this for them, and Christ cares so much about serving others, he even reminds the believers in Crete to protect themselves from the folks who will take the church away from that sort of attitude. Look at what verse 9 and 10 and 11 say. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and a divisive person is a selfish person. And then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This selfishness for one's agenda to be foremost on the mind of a community, this divisiveness that is a problem in the church, Paul is saying to Titus, it's a cancer and it will consume the church if you let it. And that's scary because then that calls us to a certain type of obedience. It calls us to learn better how to dialogue together and work through issues and work through challenges, but it also calls us to deal with people who seek to be divisive in a certain form and fashion. And people of the river, I'm here to tell you today that if you seek a division in some way, shape, or form, through criticism, critical spirit, seeking to have... Um, you know, uh, the church go the way that you think it should go and maybe not the larger church community or the leadership of this church in submission to God's obedience thinks it should go, then you and I will meet. And it will probably be a little bit of a tough meeting. But it will be a meeting, I believe, and I hope, I pray, that it's done in love. 
because division is such a cancer that as best as the leadership of this church is able, we will seek to root out or at least address that cancer in a godly, grace-filled, loving fashion. And if it means that maybe the leadership of the church needs to change, okay, that can happen. If it means that God calls me to step away from leadership, then I'm willing to submit to God's will. If it means that you need to step away from this church because we can't figure out how to navigate this division, then we'll do that. But we're not just going to let it go. We're not just going to say, oh, that's okay, that's not an issue. Scripture says it is. And if Scripture says it is an issue, then we need to make it an issue. For us to constantly remember ourselves that Christ's work on our behalf was by its very nature the work of the servant. And then to emulate that work moves us deeper into growth. And I know, folks, that that calling is for all of us, including myself, me as a leader in this church, the pastor in this church. If God calls me to submit to serve others by letting go of my agendas, then I need to do that. Someone reminded me on staff this week, it was a great reminder. As I was speaking with them, they said to me, you know, Scott, you want to be a great leader, sometimes the best thing you can do is walk into my office and say to me, how is it that I can help make the things that you feel God is calling you to make a part of your ministry happen? How can I serve you, in essence? He said to me, because if you say that to me, then I'm more prone to go and say that to someone else. And for us to be reminded, especially even as we think about our kids, what it means to model that servanthood as God empowers us in obedience to Christ to be servants of others in our families, in our homes, in our neighborhoods is such good work for us to consider. And we consider it because Christ did it for us. The Spirit calls us to get outside of our own agendas, our own desires, our own plans and pursuits, and to contribute to the community's work of mutual service, love, forgiveness, and even discipline. Sometimes it means that someone gets called on the carpet in a loving fashion, but in a clear and challenging fashion in a way that hopefully brings restoration in a renewed relationship. But all of this is done because a group of people, a community gets together and says, instead of, we have to make my plan happen, we have to make your plan happen, we have to make our plan happen together, we have to make God's plan happen together when we are willing to submit to one another in love, and when we are also willing to guard the community from things that won't allow us to do it. Now understand, this mutual behavior doesn't just benefit ourselves, but it is profitable for everyone, including those who are maybe only one or two days away from their worst day, by showing that sort of behavior to somebody who's stuck still in selfish behavior helps them take a step forward because they see, wait, that's what I'm supposed to be like. You heard Nathan say it this morning. 
He looked at his parents. He looked at his youth leaders. He looked at different people in his life and said, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And he followed them towards it. Likewise, people in this place, as the community shows them what it means to love and serve others. On Thursday at noon, I'm part of a group, I lead a group, uh, a brown bag discussion group here at the River House. We're going through the book of Romans. And this past week, we had a discussion on a portion of the book of Romans where basically the topic that we got onto is how do we love others while they are still in their sin? And it was an interesting discussion, but what came very quickly to the forefront of that discussion was just how hard this is to do. And since we want to be a growing, maturing community of faith, I think it's important for us to consider not just working towards this thing, but just how hard that work is, but then what the result of it is. Here's what I mean. Is it the calling of the river to love people who are still committing adultery? Yes? Okay. So people who are still committing adultery, it is appropriate for us to continue to love them. Is it appropriate, is it necessary, is it godly for the river to continue to love somebody who is a blazing alcoholic? Yes. Is it appropriate for the river community to continue to love somebody who is still addicted to meth, cocaine, whatever the drug of choice is? Is it okay, is it appropriate for the uh, church to love somebody who is choosing to have an abortion? Is it? If you believe it, then say it. Don't give me namby-pamby, give me real deal. Is it? Yes, okay. Is it necessary and appropriate for the church to love somebody who continues to live in, a, in an ungodly sexual relationship? Yes, it is. Is it appropriate for the church to tell not only those people, but every other person who is committing gossip or greed or malice or in living in anger, is it okay for the church to tell them what they're doing is sin? You sure? What does the Bible say? The Bible says, teach and admonish one another in brotherly and sisterly love so that you may discover and learn what God's perfect will is. For us to do that work, we are teaching each other what it means to grow and mature as faith. Okay, good. We know we're supposed to love, and we also know that we're supposed to teach somebody about their sin. How are you doing on that speaking truth and love to the sinner or the alcoholic or the person caught in greed or gossip? How easy is that? It's killer you want to know what some of the most hard, most difficult work within the Christian life is? It is to live out that servant attitude even to people who are still stuck in their sin. Because ultimately we see what this text says, that there is a time and a place to take somebody who is stuck in their sin and say, I'm sorry, but you can't be here anymore. That's, that's it's so hard. Here's the other side of it. 
I would like you to think about your worst day again and about what God did in the space of your worst day through people of God who loved him and loved you. And I can think of in my worst day a couple people who came alongside me and made sure that they knew just how much they loved me and how much God loved me, but they also wanted to know just how much what I was doing was not obedience to God. And I can tell you that I stand here today only because of what God did through those people. When you and I are willing to take on the hard work of living in community, serving one another, being willing even to take on the hardest cases as a servant, to do so in love, to speak the truth and admonish and have good discussions about what it is that God is calling us to do, but at the same time guarding the community from divisiveness and all that other stuff, when that happens, you see lives is being redeemed. I stand here because someone did that work and they did it in faithfulness and obedience to God. And I know that there's so many other stories like that out in this space right now because God used other people to show you the love of Jesus Christ even when you were selfish. They were selfless. They showed you Jesus in your heart was impacted in such a way that you can now stand a little bit further along the spectrum knowing that that's your worst day and you never want to go back. And if God wills it, you will ask His Spirit to come and continue to grow you so you never go back again. Brothers and sisters, for us to consider where our selfishness needs to be transformed to selflessness by the Spirit and how it is that we as a community can serve God together, mutually encourage and love each other together and admonish and challenge each one, each together. That's kingdom of God work. And my prayer is that in the weeks and in the days ahead, that's work that we continue to grow into and learn more about together. Would you pray with me? Thank you, O God, for your word as it challenges us to love each other, serve each other, to step out of our own agendas, to be mutual encouragers, to be people who love the sinner but despise as you do the sin, that we are willing to call out those things that are wrong but do so without judgment, without seeking to condemn, without seeking, Lord, to do work that is only yours and yours alone. Vengeance is yours, and Lord, may we not be people of vengeance, but may we be a community of grace and truth. I pray, Father, for people here who are in those places of selfishness, of immaturity, that you meet them through your Spirit, Lord, move in their hearts and their minds outside of themselves, because they know they're stuck. They know that, Lord, in and of their own faculties, there's nothing changing. But, Lord, with you, all things are possible. I pray for those folks, Lord, in such a way that you will, you'll poke them, you'll prod them, you'll kick them if you need to in love that their hearts might be changed and their lives transformed. And finally, Father, I pray for those who 
do not know you are seeking to discover more about who Jesus is, that they might learn not only through your word, but also through this sacrament that we share together, the truth of just how much we need Jesus to have a relationship with God forever. Father, that's work you and you alone can do. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. all have access to your presence. We all have access to your glory. We all have access to your love. And we praise you for that, O oh God, and we ask you to continue to unite us together. May we be, we be one as you and the Father are one, Lord Jesus. And in all of that, may you glorify yourself, may you use us to proclaim the name of Jesus and may the world be able to see the church at work and say, ooh, maybe that's something I need to learn a whole lot more about. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.